come set your rule and reign in the hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power.
this time I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward and for our morning tithes and offerings. The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was set. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, his blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon him. One final breath he gave, and on that blackest day, the Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake, Just a moment, we're going to uh, pray together, and uh, as we've done for quite a while, the altar is open for you if you'd like to come there and offer your prayers. Sometimes kneeling is the most appropriate way to express our hearts and our desire and passion for God. So as this song concludes in a minute, uh, if you want to come to the altar, just come and join me. Please stand as we continue to sing together. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb has overcome. We sing
Heavenly Father, we come today and we sing hallelujah. We offer words of praise and glory and honor to you because you are the almighty God. We worship you. This morning we come asking for your grace upon us, knowing that you hear our prayers and that you are at work beyond what we could even ask or imagine. This morning, Father, we pray for for those among us who are wrestling with grief. I think especially of Gary King and his family at the death of his father. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health, these bodies that get sick and succumb to disease. We ask, Father, especially for your grace upon Bruce and Alton. And upon Dick and Isla and Bev and Edna. And upon Linda and Micah. We pray for Bill and Crystal and Emily and for others. Who are on our hearts and minds today. Father we pray that you will be at work in our world beyond us. We pray for continued resolution of the situation in Ferguson, Missouri. And in other places of our nation where violence and separation, hatred drives so many actions. We pray, Father, for a continued resolution and healing about the Ebola virus, particularly in Africa, as well as other places where it may have spread. We ask for your healing mercy. We pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution, and we think particularly of the church in Hindu, uh, the church in India, as these, uh, in Jaya, and places where there is such persecution. Lord, as people face difficulties simply for bearing witness to you, we pray, Father, for your grace upon our brothers and sisters in Nepal in India, in so many places of the world, Lord. We ask for your grace. Father, we pray for your continued mercy as the word goes forth through the ministry of faith comes by hearing. As the scriptures go into the world, we know that your spirit is at work using them to change lives. And we pray that it will continue. Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. 
And as we embark on a new academic year, we pray for your grace upon every institution that we may represent. The college, the academy, public schools, in our homes. And we ask for your grace upon us. That this will be a year not only to learn, but to spiritually develop into your disciples like we have not seen before. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your grace upon us. Help us to walk in your ways this day and every day. And we pray all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Luke chapter 17. And as in keeping with the tradition of the church, if you would please stand for the reading of the Gospels. Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he, would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Before you're seated, I want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here. And if you have children to go to children's church or junior church, they can be dismissed at this time.
We aren't trained in the society and culture in which we live to be servants. In fact, it's sort of awkward to us when we see that and think about it. I read about a a church that was uh, doing an outreach campaign, trying to do acts of kindness in their community, just to share the love of Christ and do something different. And pastor called a grocery store and talked to the person and told him what he wanted him to do. And the the guy said, well, I'm going to have to talk to my manager about this first, but let me just make sure I understand before I go talk to him. Uh, What you're saying is you want to come and clean the parking lot and retrieve carts and hold umbrellas for customers, and you don't want anything in return. He said, yeah, that's right. So there was a couple of minutes of putting the phone down, and he came back and he said, "Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to let you do that, because if we let you do it, we're going to have to let everybody do it. I don't think that was going to be a problem for them. But it's just so weird to think that people would actually come and just serve for no reason. Want nothing back. Most children at some point are asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the typical answers are, I want to be a sports star. I want to be an actress. I want to be a teacher, or I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer, or I want to be a, a businesswoman. If you're really lucky, I want to be a pastor. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a child respond to that question and say, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. It's just not in our vocabulary. It's not in our mindset. We just don't think that way. For us, it's about how high can we rise, how much recognition can we get. We don't equate success with being a servant. And quite frankly, we don't do that in the church most of the time either. In the church, we have often adopted the exact same mindset about serving as the rest of society. The way we place value and worth is what have you accomplished? What can you do? What results can we see from what you have done? We don't typically think the highest place in the church is the lowest place. And yet, when we come to this passage this morning, and this is just one of many places where we read this, Jesus says... If you're one of my disciples, you're a servant. In fact, I think you could say Jesus says, one of the identifying characteristics of my disciples is being a servant. And when you read this, just this really brief uh, little, I guess you, it, it's stretching it even to call it a parable... But if you read this little bit that Jesus says here about the servant, he, one of the things that comes to our mind first off is that, wow, it doesn't paint a very good image of God if God is the master. He sounds, you know, pretty, a uh, lot like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. He's a pretty tyrannical leader. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not making that, that kind of connection. And he's in the same, same way, not in any way condoning slavery as an institution. But in that culture, in that time, speaking to something that they know, they would get that. 
they would understand what it means to be a servant because servants were a part of their culture. And for Jesus to say to them, if you're one of my disciples, you will be a servant, was to hit them smack in the face with a a, a way of life that they couldn't imagine. You remember the disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and say, when you bring in your kingdom, here's where we'd like to be. Could we be at the very lowest place possible? No. Jesus, when you bring in your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left? And can we be people who rule over others? Because in our way of thinking, that would be awesome. And here Jesus reminds us, as he does so many times, it's not about how high you rise, it's about how low you're willing to go. To be a servant. And quite frankly, I'm not really sure that Jesus is talking so much here about serving God as he is serving God by serving each other. Because being servants in this world, is about serving each other. That's how we serve God, by serving one another. And that makes perfect sense because one of the most difficult parts of living in this world, about being human, it's our relationships. If you stop and think about the things in your life, the times in your life, maybe you're going through it right now, that have been most difficult, most painful, the greatest struggle... I would suspect that most of the time, it's one way or another related to a relationship. Someone hurt you. Someone disappointed you. Someone didn't carry through with what they were supposed to do. Words were said, deeds were done. And that pain that we carry around in our hearts, more often than not... It's about people. So it only makes sense that Jesus says, if you're going to serve, it's going to be about people. It's going to be about our relationships. As John says to us in his first letter, if you love God, the proof of your love for God is your love for each other. And the proof of our being servants of God is serving one another. The beginning part of this chapter, Jesus gives us a glimpse into what some of that serving might look like. In verse 3, he talks about how we have, our our faith is is proved by, by service as we lovingly confront one another when that needs to happen. Now, I'm a little bit hesitant to say that because confrontation can often be anything but loving. I think I've told you this before, but I once had someone say to me years ago, I think I have the gift of confrontation. I thought, I think you do too, but I'm not sure that's from God. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd call it a gift. This person loved to tell people what was wrong with their life, but it wasn't about loving them. It certainly wasn't about serving them. It was about fulfilling some innate selfishness within them. It was about anger in their heart. And and it was about trying to tell people what to do. And that's not what we're talking about. 
But Jesus does say, if, if your brother or sister is making bad decisions, if they're going down a path that is, that is negative and harmful to them and they can't quite see it, then go to them and help turn them around. But you do it as a servant, not as a master. You don't go to them as, as a boss would go to an employee and threaten them. You go to them as a servant would go to a master and say, Master, I love you too much to not say something about this to you. And if you're a servant, you, it's a great risk to do that. And you do that with full humility. And you do that with tons of prayer. And you do it in a spirit of love. Because you don't know how the person is going to respond. But if we love one another, there are those times where in the spirit of, of serving each other, we gently, humbly say, do you see where this is headed? And it's a risk. But serving's a risk. Jesus also says that, that we, we serve one another and our faith is proved in our serving by forgiving people who hurt us. That's almost, I think it's, that is more difficult than lovingly confronting people. We all know the sting of being hurt. And our natural response to being hurt is either to hurt back or to run. And Jesus is saying to us, we're not denying the pain, we're not denying the hurt. We're, we're accepting the fact that we have been hurt, that we are struggling, and we're praying as servants to forgive. That's our passion. Our desire is to forgive. Because we've come to realize that the people who hurt us more than likely are hurting. The people who hurt are people who have been hurt. And it's out of their pain that they are lashing out against us and hurting us. And at some point, we come to the place of saying, all right, I'm going to stop this chain of pain. I'm going to stop this and I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose to be a servant and to humble myself before this person and to forgive them. And when people come to us and ask our forgiveness, we don't make them measure up. We don't make them prove it. We simply say, you're forgiven. Period. And it might take time for those words to really live in us, but we forgive people. We don't make them measure up to a standard. We don't make them, we don't make them prove themselves to us. If they ask for our forgiveness, we give it. Period. And in verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, If you want to be a servant, then you sacrifice for those who are most vulnerable. He talks about what we do about these little ones in our lives. About people who are vulnerable in the church, in society, in the world. People who are neglected. People who can, we can just easily shove to the margins and not give it a second thought. People who, are, who have no power over us at all. I mean, it's easy to serve, easier to serve people 
who have some hold over us. It's a completely different thing to serve people who have absolutely no hold, no power over us at all. People who aren't making demands on us, we just serve them. Because we love, we care about them. And how that may come out is in a variety of ways. I think it's related to, to what we, how we treat children. Maybe the way we serve is to give up some of our time and energy to come and work on Wednesday nights with our children's ministries or on Sunday nights with our youth ministry. Maybe it's, it's giving up going to Sunday school in order to be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's working in the nursery. Maybe it's helping with children's church. It will certainly be caring about our little ones in whatever way we interact with them. But it will mean sacrifice. Giving up something we want for other people because of what they need. It might be about people who are new to the gospel. New to the faith. And we give up our rights in order to help nurture them and teach them. We give up our rights because it would be harmful to them. We give up our time and energy because they need our time and energy. And we can't help everyone, but I can guarantee you, God will bring people into our lives where we are faced with the decision, are you willing to serve this person or not? And that's where the rub comes. And that's where we define whether we're really a servant or not. Are we willing to sacrifice for other people? Are we willing to give up for other people? Earlier this summer, there was an article in Christianity Today magazine about about a woman who... uh, I'm going to guess she was probably in her mid to late 20s or so, maybe early 30s. And she talked about growing up in a, in a, in a Christian home where uh, they didn't have any alcohol in the home. And she was taught that, you know, that was, a, that was a bad thing. And so when she got to be 21, she decided she was going to throw off those fetters and do whatever she wanted to do. And, and so she, you know, she was an alcoholic, but she didn't worry about that anymore. And uh, when she got married, she and her husband often met their friends at the local bar. They often had people home. They always had alcohol in their house. It was just a, became a part of their lives. And then they felt a calling to move into uh, to an inner city area of one of the cities in this country. And they lived in an apartment complex that was not the best. And... She would say it was not uncommon to come out of their apartment and walk down the steps and have to step over a man who was passed out drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning. She would hear her neighbors fighting, screaming, violent behavior induced by alcohol. She, uh, she watched as, as families were torn apart by alcohol. And one day she was walking into the liquor store to buy some alcohol and she saw one of her neighbors in coming out. And all of a sudden it struck her. 
what I'm doing and I, the right that I have is quite, quite possibly a hindrance to these people around me who aren't able to handle it. And he said, my husband and I decided in that moment that we would stop. Because we wanted to send a message that you can live without this, that you don't need it. And we decided we were going to sacrifice for people who had needs that we didn't have. And as I read that article, I thought to myself, well, that's not necessarily my issue, but there are lots of other issues that that's where God speaks into my heart. Do I have a right to do some things? Yes, I do. But as a servant of one another, when God says, that's not healthy for others, you're harming people who can't handle it, are you willing as a servant to stop? Fred Craddock says that most of us think that we think about serving God as bringing this $1,000 bill before God and laying it on the table and say, God, here's my life. And I'm going to go out in this blaze of glory, of this $1,000 blaze of glory. He says, actually, the life of a servant, God says to us, I want you to take that $1,000 bill and go to the bank and cash it in for quarters. And we spend our lives giving out 50 cents of service here and 25 cents of service there. And every so often, maybe a dollar of service there. Because service isn't really about how big we can do things. It's about the small, everyday moments when we see a need and we respond to it. Maybe it's Spending time listening to a child when we'd rather do anything else. Maybe it's spending an hour at the nursing home with people who may not remember tomorrow that we were there. Maybe it's taking a meal to someone or it's working in one of the ministries of the church, unnoticed, unrecognized. But that's not really the point, is it? It's being a servant. Whether we get recognition or not. Gordon McDonald says, you can tell how well you're doing being a servant by how you react when people treat you like a servant. When recognition doesn't come for what we do, how do we respond to that? What do we do about the needs that God brings into our lives to serve? And it's not just one moment. It's not just one time. It's a lifestyle. I am convinced that being a servant is one of the identifying characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus. I don't think we can be disciples of Jesus without being servants. Because when we look at Jesus, that's what he is. Isaiah tells us, beginning in chapter 42 and on through the next dozen or so chapters, that the one who will come, the anointed one, the Messiah, how will he be known? He will be called the suffering 
servant. That's how he's identified. Servant. And Paul writes to the church of Philippi and says, have the same attitude in, have the same attitude in your lives that Christ had. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. And that brings us to this table. This table is, is, brings us to Christ who serves. Christ who gives his life as a servant. Not just on the cross, but every moment of his existence, a servant. And this is a table of grace. Because the one who serves calls us to come and know the joy of serving. The writer of Hebrews says to us that, speaking of Christ, says, seeing the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. Jesus doesn't serve begrudgingly. Jesus doesn't come and serve because he is forced to do so. It's not as though God pinned his arm behind his back and forcing him to come to earth and be a servant. When Jesus is born into this world, the angels celebrate. The angels rejoice. And we're called to that same joy of serving. Is a sacrifice? You better believe it. Is it giving up? Of course. But it's in the grace of Christ. It is the nature of Christ and his disciples. And when we follow Christ, we know joy and peace. And the fullness of Christ floods our lives. This is a table of grace to serve. As a lifestyle, as a choice, something we embrace because it is the nature of our Lord and our Savior who goes to the cross for us. So in a moment, we're going to come to this table and we're going to receive the bread and the cup. And as we do so, We come giving thanks for Christ, who because he serves, changes our lives. And we come embracing that it means to be be a follower of Christ is to be a servant. And to find in that service the spirit of of Christ at work and alive in our being. Gracious Father, you know that serving is difficult for us. It goes against the grain of all that we are taught and how we're, quite frankly, nurtured in the world and often in the church. But today we come to declare that That we want to be so filled with your grace that serving like Christ is the most natural thing in the world for us.
We thank you, Father, for Christ and all that he has done for us. We thank you for his blessing, for his death and resurrection. We pray, Father, that you will pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we are about to eat and drink. And we pray, Father, that we will know the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. But this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. It just means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and eat it. And you can return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If uh, coming to the front is difficult for you, the ushers have bread and cups, and we would be happy to serve you in your seat. We also have gluten-free wafers. and If you need those, just let me know as you come to the front. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with a desire to be a servant through the grace and the power of Christ, Come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
receive the benediction. As the people of God, go from this place to serve both God and your neighbor, that they may see in you the grace, the love, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen.